tracheostomies and laryngectomies seem to be one of those things in pre-hospital education that are at best glanced over and at worst completely avoided by educational establishments. Many paramedics and pre-hospitalists then tend not to revisit the subject until about 10 minutes before they arrive at the scene of a tracheostomy emergency. Reports by NCEPOD and the National Patient Safety Authority suggest that between 20 and 30% of all patients who are admitted to hospital will have some sort of incident with their tracheostomy or laryngectomy. And when a clinical incident does occur relating to one of these, then the chance of some harm occurring is between 60 and 70%. Clearly, just like any other aspect of airway management, pre-hospitalists need to be prepared and educated to manage tracheostomy emergencies, as it's a situation that requires immediate and decisive action. Right, so it's a big topic this month. We're going to try really hard not to go off on any tangents, and we'll really work hard to make sure we stay on track here. <clears throat> stay on track here. Ambulance General Broadcast, any vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name's Josh. I'm Simon. And I'm Alex. And this month we are joined by a special guest who I'm going to let introduce themselves. Uh, over to you, Brendan. Can you tell us a little bit about who you are and, and your background, please? Yeah, hi. Uh, my name's Brendan McGrath. I am essentially an intensive care doctor working in Manchester. I spend half my time uh, doing a bit of research. I've got a background in anaesthetics done quite a lot of work around uh, looking into problems with airway management, particularly in the critically ill, and that's got a particular focus on tracheostomy care, which historically hasn't been done particularly well, and we've tried to learn from some of the um, problems that have arisen with care, and, and over the past sort of 15 years or so, we've been trying to develop strategies and, and ways of trying to improve care, uh, both in the emergency setting and then trying to prevent uh, problems developing in the first place. So that's essentially uh, what, what my job involves is uh, helping people with tracheostomies and uh, artificial airways. And that's what this month is all about. We came up with the idea for this podcast a couple of months ago when we were having a discussion after after one of our colleagues was involved in a, in a particularly uh, tricky case involving a tracheostomy emergency and, and it actually dawned on us that we all weren't particularly confident in what we would do in that situation and, and we didn't know uh, absolutely the gold standard of care for these patients in emergency situations. So through talking about that and talking about that with our colleagues, we realised that this is actually quite a knowledge gap within the ambulance service and, and within pre-hospital responders. So uh, we thought, let's do a podcast on it. So with that in mind, let's get started. So, Brendan, we came to hear about you and contact you through your work with the National Tracheostomy Safety Project. Would you mind just giving us a little bit more of a background about that and telling us about your, your work with it and how it was that you came to set up that project? So the NTSP started as a result of my own personal experience with tracheostomy care, which is very similar to that of your colleague that you just described that when I was an anaesthetic trainee uh, back in the day, um, first night on call at a new hospital, uh, as is often the way, I got summoned to the intensive care unit uh, in a hurry to be met by a patient with a tracheostomy on a ventilator who was very blue. 
and a lot of panicking staff. And I realised I wasn't quite sure what to do. Managed to make our way through that situation and and, and fortunately the, the patient was okay. But when I looked around that particular ICU, I think it was an eight-bedded unit and I think half of the patients had tracheostomies. And I'd been a medic for a long time before I was an anaesthetist and I realised that no one had ever actually told me how to manage a tracheostomy. And it was pretty clear that if I was going to embark on a career in uh, anaesthesia intensive care, I was going to come across patients with uh, tracheostomies and, and laryngectomies. And, and initially, we looked for some guidance. So I got chatting to my colleagues over a pint and uh, everyone else was the same, that no one was training in our region uh, or further afield that was was regularly taught about tracheostomies and, and, and laryngectomies and certainly what to do in a, in a problem. And, and we didn't look to um, start the NTSP. We looked to just find someone else's resource and, and perhaps publicize it. But when we realized that there wasn't actually any resource out there, we um, embarked on a regional project, which became a national project to try and develop some sort of standardized approach to emergency care. And what we were trying to do was um, have the same situation like you have at a cardiac arrest where, you know, if someone keels over, you would expect a certain sequence of events by any responder with perhaps more advanced responders coming when they're summoned. And if you arrive halfway through a cardiac arrest, you should be able to pick up the pace and know exactly what's coming next. And with all the sort of staff in attendance able to buy into that sort of shared model of, of, of what to do and, and tackling things in the order which are going to try and solve the, the situation the fastest. And that resulted in the publication of uh, the first multidisciplinary uh, tracheostomy and laryngectomy algorithms back in 2012. And then increasingly, we, we got working with colleagues in other countries, and it became clear that actually this was a quality improvement project we needed to do, not just about waiting for emergencies to happen and then having systems in place to solve them. And we'd done a lot of work with the National Patient Safety Agency trying to understand what was happening with these tracheostomy emergencies so we could develop our resources in response. And we rolled that into various programs, uh, again, regionally, then nationally, then working with a newly formed group of colleagues called the Global Tracheostomy Collaborative, with basically bunches of people around the world trying to do the same thing we were doing, but working closely with patients. And, and patients and their families told us that they expected when they went to the hospital, they would have safe care. They expected if they called for help, the people who turned up would know what they were doing and be well supported and equipped to do that. And what they wanted was high quality care, which for patients with tracheostomies and, and uh, laryngectomies often is uh, eating, drinking, talking and getting out of hospital as quickly as possible. And so over the last few years, that, that's become our focus, sort of really trying to build on high quality care, which almost inevitably leads to safer care. Um, and the NTSP is a, is a UK charity set up just to try and be a one-stop shop for resources, e-learning, uh, quick videos where you can go to and have a quick look, you know, just if you meet someone with a tracheostomy or some refresher training, or if you're teaching someone else, we've tried to put together all the things that, that we think you need to know to uh, safely care for patients with tracheostomies. 
Excellent. And they really are fantastic resources, which we'll talk a little bit more about uh, towards the end of the show and, and exactly where the listeners can, can go to find some of those resources and some of those courses. Before, before we go on to talk about which patients have tracheostomies and why, I think it would be quite useful to sort out some definitions. So Simon, are you happy to tell us what a tracheostomy is? And then Alex, can you let us know what a laryngectomy is? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really important as I didn't actually, when I was uh, in my junior paramedic career, I didn't actually know that there was a difference between the, the two devices so um, and the two approaches. So I, I think it's really important. A tracheostomy is a semi-permanent or permanent hole that's created as an opening into the trachea, just inferior to the cricoid ring. This creates a patent opening for ventilation between the upper and lower airways, which can be a temporary or a permanent procedure. It's important to understand that the oro and nasopharynx remain potentially patent in a tracheostomy, meaning that some air movement is still possible. This patency may fluctuate, making ventilation difficult or impossible owing to the underlying potential pathology, such as an airway cancer. The location of a tracheostomy is between the second and third tracheal rings, which is an ideal position for insertion of this tube because the isthmus of the thyroid gland may lie across or just below this point. So, as I said, this differs quite a lot from a laryngectomy. So, Alex, do you want to tell us a bit more about a laryngectomy? Laryngectomy, ectomy, comes from the Greek ectome, which means to cut out. A laryngectomy is the surgical removal of the larynx with the trachea being detached from the upper airway and stitched to the front of the neck. This means that there's no connection from the naso and the oropharynx to the lungs. It's important to understand that when it comes to ventilation troubleshooting later, as unlike a tracheostomy, there's no possibility of using a BVM in a conventional manner in these patients. Brendan, can I just ask quickly, what's, what is the location of the laryngectomy? Is it the, the same place as a tracheostomy? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, I, I like your very correct uh, descriptions there. I mean, the, the way I think about it, 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 it's a piece of hose pipe that goes from your nose and mouth uh, down to your lungs. And with a tracheostomy, you're basically cutting a hole in the middle of that hose pipe. So water can still flow like the air would flow from one end to the other, but you've got an extra hole. So that, that's a tracheostomy. Whereas a laryngectomy, pretty much where that hole is for the tracheostomy, you're actually cutting the hose in half and you're chucking the top half away. So the only way to get air in and out is through the hole in your neck. And that's a really big difference. And then just to confuse you, uh, as, uh, as Simon mentioned, that if you've got a tracheostomy inserted because you've got an airway problem like a big cancer or something like that then sometimes patients with a tracheostomy although there is a technically a connection still between their nose and their mouth and their lungs uh, it might be blocked off with tumor or trauma so uh, sometimes patients with tracheostomies confusingly can only breathe through that hole in the neck but the hole in the neck is pretty much in the same place you know that they're all holes in the neck but it's just what uh, what the connections above uh, is where you have this this important difference. So, if, if the holes are in the same place, is there a way of telling them apart other than you know perhaps the patient being able to tell us themselves? Is is there any way to tell the difference between the two? Um, so, if you meet a patient who has got a laryngectomy, they may or may not be able to speak. Quite a lot of patients now, when they have a laryngectomy, that's removal of their voice box. Uh, obviously, if you haven't got a voice box anymore and the gas you breathe out comes out of a hole in your neck, 
no gas comes through your voice box. You haven't got it anymore, and it doesn't come out through your mouth. So you're not able to vocalize as you did before you had the surgery. However, you can have some situations where you have a little valve put in on the inside, which you might talk about later. But essentially, patients can can force air from their lungs into their esophagus and effectively burp. And some patients can burp really well, and they can burp so well that you can be convinced that they're talking quite normally. Um, So a patient may well be able to tell you that they've got a laryngectomy, uh, and that can be pretty confusing because you'll remember, hang on, you haven't got a larynx. How come you're talking? And and that's where having a quick dip into some of those videos uh, can be really quite helpful. If the patient is awake and can communicate with you, then obviously that's the best way of of telling. Some patients wear medic alert bracelets. So if you see a patient with uh, something in their neck, either a hole or a tube in the neck, have a look at their wrist for a medic alert bracelet or, or something around their neck. If you've Seen pictures of laryngectomies, uh, if, if you imagine probably some sort of uh, film star bloke with a very prominent Adam's apple, you know, like a 1950s sort of, you know, handsome leading male with a great big sort of uh, thyroid cartilage, Adam's apple, all of that has gone when you have a laryngectomy. So you have a bit of a crater where your Adam's apple would be. And once you've seen one laryngectomy, it's pretty obvious uh, there's a great big hole there. There's usually a jigsaw mark across the neck. There's often radiotherapy scarring and sort of uh, burn marks. So the the, the clues are uh, a sort of crater there and and evidence of significant surgery. So it looks like some of your neck is missing, if you like. But it can be very difficult to tell. The last thing I was going to ask you about laryngectomies, Brendan, why might someone have a laryngectomy over a tracheostomy? And added on to that, which is the most common? So by far and away, the commonest procedure is a tracheostomy, which is uh, usually a temporary bypass of the upper airway. Uh, And the commonest reason we do that nowadays is for prolonged ventilation on an intensive care unit. And usually that's, that's temporary. And usually we'll get people off ventilators and usually we'll be able to remove that tracheostomy, but not always. The other common reasons for having a tracheostomy will be because you have a a problem with your upper airway, usually a cancer or trauma or swelling. They're the sort of emergencies that come in uh, from the community. You need a tracheostomy in a hurry. So you're bypassing the upper airway. And the descriptions of people like Alexander the Great and uh, Egyptians, uh, you know, 3,000 years ago, performing tracheostomies in order to bypass airway obstruction. So it's a very old surgical technique. Sometimes patients who've got neurological injuries, uh, you know, head injuries or or post-stroke, things like that, uh, where their swallowing clockwork uh, isn't very well coordinated and they're at risk of aspirating, which means, you know, stuff that should be going in your mouth and into your stomach could potentially then go down into your lungs and give you pneumonia. We protect their airway, in inverted commas, with a tracheostomy tube with a cuff inflated so that that stops or reduces the chance of stuff falling into their lungs. And then the the, the last group are patients who can't cough very well for various reasons. And so the tracheostomy can be there as a, as a route of access into the lungs to, to, to suction the airway. So tracheostomy is a lot more common than laryngectomies. Laryngectomies are performed for cancer of the larynx. Um, very occasionally, it's to separate your airway from your from your esophagus. So if you've got terrible problems aspirating. So for example, Stephen Hawking ended up with a laryngectomy because he was repeatedly aspirating by all accounts. And so very occasionally, it's done for, for non-cancer reasons, but it's nearly always done because you've got a cancer of your larynx. And the only way to treat that often is is to chop it out, which involves removal of the larynx. 
Uh, now, we don't keep stats on how many people get tracheostomies and how many people get laryngectomies. That, that's hopefully changing because having a laryngectomy is often a curative procedure. And so you can have a laryngectomy, you know, in your 50s, 60s or whenever that cures you of your cancer. And uh, usually that's enough of a clue to make people stop smoking and they live happily ever after and go back to work. And, you know, be, there's maybe a thousand or so laryngectomies done per year in the UK. And a lot of those patients will go on and, and, and live in the community quite happily, quite independently. And so if you're just looking at neck breathers in the community, there are relatively fewer tracheostomies, but we don't know what that ratio is of patients with laryngectomies to patients with, with tracheostomies who uh, live active lives out in the community. We just don't keep that data, unfortunately. So obviously, um, many paramedics are familiar with a cricothyroidotomy. Um, so, Brendan, maybe you could just explain the difference between a tracheostomy and a cricothyroidotomy? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, essentially, they're holes in the neck. They're accessing the airway. A cricothyroidotomy is the emergency procedure. So if you cannot get access to someone's airway, so it's classically a can't intubate, can't ventilate situation, then an emergency cricothyroidotomy is what you do. And that's performed through the cricothyroid membrane, which is higher up in the neck, uh, so between your uh, laryngeal cartilage and your cricoid cartilage. Uh, the reason we go there, it's pretty easy to find in most people, unless you've got a very big neck. It is supposed to bleed less, although the ones I've done, uh, that's not always true. But it, it's generally a bit easier to find. It's a smaller hole, you put a smaller tube in it. So it's a temporary access to the airway in an emergency so that can't intubate, can't ventilate a tracheostomy is a bigger hole it's made about an inch further down as i said before ideally between the second and third trachea rings you're accessing the trachea just a bit further down it's a bigger hole it's a more stable hole you can put a bigger tube in it you can ventilate someone you know for days weeks months and years through it whereas you can't with a cricothyroidotomy but it's a bit more of an undertaking to insert a tracheostomy for all the reasons you outlined with your anatomical description there's a bit more clockwork in the way so in an emergency can't intubate can't ventilate that's a cricothyroidotomy whereas for more medium to long-term ventilation that's a tracheostomy lower down in the neck fantastic thanks brendan that's a really good uh, run through uh, josh did you want to just talk to us a little bit about transesophageal puncture uh well <laughs> yes in as much as brendan can you tell me what a transesophageal puncture is <laughs> Uh, as it, it comes up uh, in, in a couple of the guidelines and, and uh, some of the emergency pathways as something to uh, recognise and crucially not to try and remove. So can you just let us know what it is, what it's for, and how we're going to recognise it? Sure, yes. Yeah. So um, a transesophageal puncture valve, or TOP, or if you're in America and you can't spell, they call them TEPs. So a, a, a TEP valve is often what it's called over here as well. The, the it's a little one-way valve which is inserted surgically between the trachea and the esophagus in a patient who's had a laryngectomy. And it's often done at the time of surgery or sometimes you do the laryngectomy and bring a patient back a few months later to, to, to put the TEP valve in. And once it's in, it allows the laryngectomy to exhale through their neck because no gas comes out through the nose and mouth. But if you cover the stoma in the neck, uh, usually with a, a valve, which can be either you put your finger over it or you can get these fancy valves that, that, that sort of respond to changes in, in, in the airflow. But essentially, you occlude your 
exit point in your neck, the, your laryngectomy stoma, and you breathe out. And the gas then forces its way back through the TEP valve into your esophagus, into your food pipe, uh, high up in your pharynx. And so effectively, the gas you breathe out comes out like a burp. So it, it's gas that comes up from your gullet, essentially, out into your mouth. And it takes a bit of practice, but you can speak really well. It's often a quieter voice. Uh, but again, if you go and have a look at some of our videos, there's a couple of our patients. Um, John, I remember, speaks essentially normally, and, and he's wearing a cravat. You can't tell he's got a laryngectomy. He's got a hands-free valve on. And he's talking about uh, when he got told he was going to have a laryngectomy and lose his voice. And there he is talking freely. So a, a, a tap valve is is often life-transforming for laryngectomy patients who, who basically get their voice back and a lot of them talk about getting their personality back and independence back and, and you know, it's, it's tricky to live without your voice. The reason why it's in the guidelines is because this little one-way valve, it looks like a mini dumbbells, you know, with a, with a sort of lump at each end and a little tube in the middle uh, and, and it's hollow. It's perfectly possible to change those valves, but it's quite fiddly and it's a sort of thing that's done on a sort of three-monthly basis by usually expert ENT specialist nurses or advanced care practitioners or, or ENT surgeons. And if you get it wrong or if you pull a valve out and don't get one back in within a certain time frame, then the hole can close up or the, the hole can get damaged or you get a fistula. And it can end up meaning that that patient has lost their chance to vocalise which is why the guidance says don't mess with them. Now, you can put a tube into a laryngectomy stoma. You can put in whatever you like, a tracheostomy tube, an endotracheal tube, whatever you like. It might knock the TEP valve, but it usually the worst it'll do is rotate it slightly. So, you know, whenever we as an ESIS in theatre have been uh, putting things down laryngectomy stomas, we always get the ENT guys or the uh, head and neck um, specialists to come and have a look and just check that we've not you know, rotated the valve or, or, or knocked it slightly. The reason why it's in the guidance is if, if you look into a stoma and you see a little bit of plastic in someone who is uh, who, who's struggling with their breathing, the temptation is to get a pair of forceps and, and, and fish it out. But again, if you have a look at some of the pictures and the videos, you, you'll see some stills and videos of looking down someone's stoma. You can see very clearly a TEP valve in place just looks like a little mini polo nicely flat against the back wall of, of, of the trachea. And so it, it should be pretty clear that it's not going to obstruct the airway. And, and, and it's so small, it, it's not going to cause a major blockage of the airway. So the advice is leave it well alone. But I guess unless you've seen a picture of one or you, or you vaguely understand what one is, you know, you, the temptation is to go, oh my God, there's a bit of plastic in the airway, I must fish it out. But we recommend that you don't be, be for all those reasons that we've just outlined. So sorry, that's a very long-winded explanation, but if you're a laryngectomy with a tap valve, you don't want anyone to mess with it. No, absolutely. And and we'll we'll put some pictures and images up on the on, on the website in the article because uh, as soon as you see the diagram of what you've so eloquently explained, it is quite obvious uh, sort of ha- how it's how it functions and, and that it's part of the normal laryngectomy. So I guess the takeaway points are that it wouldn't be unexpected to look into a laryngectomy site if you've removed both the tubes and see a little bit of plastic at the back of the airway we we can potentially expect to see that i guess the the thing that i wanted to clarify was was there something external to the site that we might accidentally confuse for the tracheal tube but it sounds like this is very much internal and will stay internal correct yeah it's very internal it's usually like an inch or so inside the trachea and if you look 
down a laryngectomy, you might need your pen torch to, to, to see down a deep, dark hole sometimes, but it, it looks like a trachea. You know, it, you could, it looks like what you imagine a windpipe would look like with the rings uh, of, of the trachea, and, and you can see this little plastic valve just sitting at the back. Laryngectomies will often have things over the that their stoma. It's unusual just to have the stoma wide open to, to the air because you lose all of your normal humidification mechanisms when you don't have gas breathed in via your nose particularly. And so laryngectomies will often have a stoma cover, which is like a sort of base plate, looks like a big sticky dressing about the size of a, I don't know, a, a small mug in, in sort of um, circumference over and around the stoma with a little filter sitting over the top of it. So in order to see the hole in the neck, you, you've usually got to take off at least part of, of, of that dressing, but it, it, it's sticky, just sticks to the skin. So that, that's the bit you, that you might have to remove, but it's we're talking about a sort of circular sticking plaster rather than anything that's down inside the neck. So we've never seen one before. If you're having to fish down someone's uh, laryngectomy stoma to, to fish out a little piece of plastic, you probably shouldn't be doing that. Well, you shouldn't be doing that. Okay, that's a very good gross error check. And, and can I just clarify that laryngectomies, do they not have internal tubes in the way that tracheostomies do? Because tracheostomies, the the, the the stuff on the website says that there's an internal and external tube. Is that not the case with laryngectomies? Yeah, so this this can all get very confusing. So if 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 you think about it, there the, are the holes in the neck, okay? And with a hole in the neck, you can place a tube. So a laryngectomy stoma is the cut end of the trachea brought to the front of the neck. And with a laryngectomy stoma, you don't need to have anything in that tube because it's the trachea. It, 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 it's, a, it's a hose pipe that, that's got cartilaginous rings that keep it like a hose pipe and it ends on your neck skin. So you don't need to have anything in it. Uh, but as I said, you often have things covering it, just mainly for humidification and sometimes to help with, with, with vocalisation. With a tracheostomy, the position of the trachea has not been altered. So the trachea can be anywhere between a few millimetres to a couple of inches deep in your neck. And so the tracheostomy stoma, the, the, the mouth that's being created, the, the path from the skin down to where the windpipe is, you need a tube in that because that's not windpipe. That's gristle, cartilage, bit of fat, bit of muscle that you need to keep and hold open with some sort of tube. So you need to have a tube to keep a tracheostomy stoma open. Now, if, if the stoma's been in there for more than a week or two, then, you know, you can take the tube out for probably several hours and it'll still be there. So, you know, it's not like you take the tube out and immediately you've, you, you've lost your stoma. But with a tracheostomy, you need a tracheostomy tube in that stoma. And a safety feature from uh, nearly all tracheostomy tubes now is that if the tube gets blocked with spit or blood or snot or whatever, uh, rather than have to take out the whole tube, they have like an inner cannula. So it, it, it's a double lumen tube or it's got like an inner liner. And so you leave the outer tube in place, the tracheostomy tube in place, and you just remove the little inner liner. And either, well, most people in the community would be cleaning it putting a spare one in, leaving the one you just took out uh, to dry. Sometimes use disposals where you can take it out, throw it in the bin and put a, put a clean one in. Very confusingly, if you are trying to ventilate someone with a laryngectomy, then we'd often put a tracheostomy tube in that hole. So only if you're trying to ventilate someone, you need to put something into a laryngectomy's stoma. But you're not going to find someone with a laryngectomy out and about in the community with a tube actually in their stoma very commonly. 
sometimes if patients are having trouble with with the laryngectomy, there are little tiny short tubes that, that that you can put in just just to help with, you know, if it's a bit if if the stoma is is, is a little bit uh, sore or there's lots of suction or, or you know some patients like to have little tiny tubes just to uh, help with stickiness of the base plates things like that. So. But it's unusual to have a tube in a laryngectomy stoma if you're just out and about in the community. Whereas with a tracheostomy, you always need a tracheostomy tube in that hole. Talking of tracheostomy tubes, uh, Brendan, I, my understanding is that there's different types of uh, different types of tubes, different sizes, uh, cuffed, uncuffed, that sort of thing. Are you able to give us a sort of brief run through of the different types of tubes? Because I think it's important that. Certainly in my experience and my own learning, I have not had a huge amount of uh, learning around tracheostomies or laryngectomies myself. And I think it's important to understand what is what is normal before we start to talk about the emergency management. So most patients who need a long-term tracheostomy who are out and about in the community will have an uncuffed tracheostomy tube. That's mainly there as a sort of safety feature. So tracheostomy tubes can have a cuff on the end, like like a balloon, like an endotracheal tube, essentially, or they can be built without one. So if you imagine you have got a tracheostomy, so you've got a, a patent upper airway, so you can breathe in and out through your nose and your mouth, um, but you can also breathe in and out through the hole in your neck. And so if you have an uncuffed tube sitting in your tracheostomy stoma, when you breathe in, you'll breathe in through your mouth and through your neck. And when you breathe out, you'll breathe out through your neck and through your mouth. And the relative proportion of gas that comes in and out will depend on your anatomy and, and the size and orientation of the tube, stuff like that. But essentially, it's going to be like 50-50 of the gas comes out through your neck and, and some of the gas will come out through your mouth. The reason for the tracheostomy might be that the patient's got a problem with their upper airway, so there might be relatively more gas coming out through their, through their neck. But that doesn't matter too much. If they have a cuffed tracheostomy in that same situation and the cuff is blown up cuff is inflated then that effectively seals off the upper airway so when you breathe in and out you can only breathe in and out through your tracheostomy tube now so you only breathe through your neck so the presence of an inflated cuff means that you can only breathe in and out through your neck so if you try to bag someone with a bag valve mask system with a mask over their nose and mouth you cannot get any gas into their lungs because there's a tube in there with a balloon inflated, so you can't get any gas past it. If you were to deflate that cuff on the cuff tracheostomy, you go back to essentially being an uncuffed tube. There's a deflated cuff in the way, but you're back to square one where you should be able to get some gas in and out through the top end and breathe in and out through both your nose and mouth and the tracheostomy. So that's cuff tubes and uncuffed tubes. Obviously, if you have a cuffed tube and the tube gets blocked, then you've just used up your only airway. So uh, that, that's why generally an uncuffed tube is a safer option because if an uncuffed tube gets blocked with spit or blood or whatever, you can still breathe past it via your, your sort of nose and mouth. And, and again, there's a step in the algorithm if you come across a cuffed tube to, to deflate it because you might be able to get air past that tube via your, your nose and mouth. So that's cuffed tubes, which hopefully isn't too confusing. So recognising a cuffed tube, I'm assuming it's as simple as 
they will have one of the little inflation ports that we're familiar with an ET tube having on the outside. Exactly, yeah. Little pilot balloon looks exactly the same. They take usually somewhere between five and ten mils of gas to, to blow them up. Uh, should be inflated with a with a manometer. In an emergency, it doesn't matter too much as long as it's checked. You know, you've got to check the pressure in it because you can have all sorts of mucosal pressure problems. But yeah, in emergency, you blow it up a couple of mils of air and uh, deflate it just by sticking a standard syringe on and then deflating the pilot balloon. So yeah, exactly the same as, a, as an endotracheal tube. Great, thank you. There's other features on tubes which can cause all sorts of confusion. So in hospital, we have some slightly different features which are unlikely to come across in the, in the community. There's sometimes an additional little mini tube that, that 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 comes out so you've got like the pilot balloon for inflating the cuff sometimes on the the other side of the uh, tracheostomy there's another little tube that dangles down in front of the neck uh, that's called a subglottic suction port i wouldn't worry too much about them I think they're fairly hospital specific but occasionally there's people out there with with two ports so they can be a bit confusing if you go to try and deflate the cuff and there's there's two bits where you can sit your syringe but if you're trying to deflate or inflate a cuff you use the port that looks like the balloon of, of an, of an endotracheal tube. There's a, another feature that confuses people very frequently in hospital and outside of hospital, which is fenestrations. Again, I wouldn't worry too much about them, but if you imagine the uh, the, the, the profile of tracheostomy tubes sideways on, if you were to sort of imagine I'm... Uh, as you're listening to, to me talking of sideways on uh, a tracheostomy tube goes in horizontally through your neck and then it turns through 90 degrees and heads south and points into your lungs. On that bend where the tracheostomy tube goes through that 90 degree bend, some tubes have a hole in the outer part of the tube and that can help patients get more gas out through their upper airway. So when you breathe out, if the cuff is deflated or if it's an uncuffed tube, some gas will sneak around that tube and out through your mouth. Some patients don't get a great voice with that. And with a fenestrated tube, that means that some of the gas then that goes through the tracheostomy and, and would normally then come out of your neck can sneak out through that hole in the uh, in the angle of the trachea tube. So effectively, you get more gas coming out through your mouth with a fenestrated tube. The fenestrations cause all sorts of issues with suction catheters because if you've got a fenestrated inner tube in and you pass a suction catheter, then the little hole can just be in the wrong place to catch a suction catheter. And so you pass the suction catheter in and it catches. And I would say that's the biggest problem with fenestrated tubes that, that you know, that, that they can be a bit tricky to suction. And so uh, people are told a bit about fenestrated tubes to move away from that that problem that you sometimes have with a fenestrated inner cannula that, that you cannot get a suction catheter down. If you recognise what's going on, it's a brilliant fix because you go from panicking, you can't get a suction catheter down, thinking, oh my God, the tube must be blocked or, or displaced or something, to thinking, oh, it's the, it's the inner cannula. So you swap it for the one without the hole in and that usually solves the problem. So fenestrations can be really confusing. Uh, again, like you said before, if you have a look at some of those images, we've got some pretty simple images and animations that just show where the gas flows with with um, these various features of the tube, cuff up, cuff down, or fenestration. Fantastic. Thanks, Brendan. 
I'm aware that we've we've buzzed through quite a lot of information quite quickly there. So I'll just summarize that really quickly. So the tubes do come in different sizes for, for different shapes and different uh, different people. Some tubes will have a cuff, much like an endotracheal tube, which may be inflated or or or, uh, or left uninflated. And the the tubes themselves may be fenestrated, which means that they have a little window to increase airflow uh, up through to the oronasopharynx. And the inner tubes may also be fenestrated or non-fenestrated. The other things that you may see might be a little pilot balloon for the for the cuff, uh, again, much like you would see on an endotracheal tube, or potentially a subglottic suction port. Yeah, you've got it. Well done. <laughs> Another thing worth saying about the inner cannula is depending on the make of the tube, some inner cannula are required to be in in order to connect up to any sort of breathing circuit. Where and, and they're typically white tubes made by uh, Traco or, or Capitex or Shiley, and some inner cannula can be in or out, and you can still connect up. Uh, typically, tubes made by uh, Portex or, or, or Telflex, and I guess the reason for telling you that is because I'm well aware of, of uh, a paramedic medic mate of mine who turned up to a tracheostomy emergency in someone's house who. Uh, very dramatically removed the inner cannula and threw it over his shoulder and then need to go and crawl behind the telly and find it again in order to connect them up to some sort of breathing circuit. So don't dramatically throw away the inner cannula because you might actually need it back again if you need to connect them up to some sort of uh, ventilation system in the future. It's pretty obvious when you get there because it sticks out by about half an inch, uh, the, the, the inner cannula, if, if, if it's one that you need to connect up. Brilliant. That's a that's a great little tidbit uh, actually to uh, to remember. So the only the only other thing I was going to ask around tubes and uh, the type of thing that we you know that we might come across. What what sort of thing are we most likely to see pre-hospitally? You said that for for safety reasons, most often you will find uh, a tube uncuffed. So what what sort of thing are we most likely to see in the community? Um, and and I guess why is that? Is that you know safety reasons, or is there other other aspects um, to why people might have different things in the community than hospital? Yeah, so there are three top things that happen with tracheostomy tubes. They either get blocked, they fall out, and and that falling out can be complete falling out or partially falling out, so partial displacement, or they bleed. Uh, I would imagine that once your stoma is established or you've had your surgery and you're out in the community, bleeding is, is pretty rare. The sort of significant bleeding that, that we worry about tends to happen quite quite early on after you've had a tracheostomy um, formed. So the biggest problems you're going to come across are blockage of that tracheostomy tube or displacement. And if it's, you know, if, if someone's holding it in their hand or it's on the floor, it's pretty obvious what's happened. If it's half in, half out and someone's turned blue, partial displacement can be really tricky to work out what's going on because the tube can look like it's in, like f- from the surface, but but it may well uh, have come out of the airway. The other big problem with tracheostomies is that people get focused on tracheostomies. So say someone with a tracheostomy has an asthma attack or a heart attack or fits or you know all of the more common things that that, that can happen and and typically patients who have tracheostomies out in the community or, or, or laryngectomies that they've usually got medical problems associated with that as i said laryngectomies have, have nearly all been smokers some of them 
still smoke, so that you may have increased risk of ischemic heart disease, whatever. Um, often patients who require tracheotomy in the community have usually got underlying medical problems. And so what I'm getting at is, is that they will have medical emergencies for all the other things you get called about, which are nothing to do with their airway. And when people turn up, they go, oh my God, they've got a tracheostomy or a laryngectomy and people get fixated on the fact they have an artificial airway when what you need to do is 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 recognize that and in the same way if someone's not breathing you open their airway and if that fixes the problem or if their airway is fine you move on to breathing circulation all the other things and, and so i would say uh, as well as obstruction and displacement recognizing that there's actually nothing wrong with the tracheostomy laryngectomy and moving on to work out what else is wrong it, it, it is a big problem. Hopefully by knowing a little bit about tracheostomies and listening to podcasts like this and, and looking up a bit of information online, what we're hoping to do is, is give people some basic knowledge and, and, and confidence to say, okay, this person is breathing through this hole in the neck. I need to move on and, and forget about it. It's just like any other airway. It's, it's patent. It's some other problem. And so, yeah, I would say that they're, they're the biggest three problems for the community, which are slightly different to what we face in, in hospital. I think it's a really great example you just made about getting carried away with the tracheostomy being the main problem. Um, I remember when I first registered, I went out to someone who had lots of equipment. They'd just come out of hospital, lots of equipment that was ventilating them. And I tried to bring all this equipment with me in the ambulance, which wasn't working properly. And I, I remember I was quite flustered. It was a horrible job. And when we got to hospital, someone with a bit of sense, the anaesthetist actually just unconnected all of it attached to bvm and just bagged the patient with some oxygen and brought everything back to normal just simple stuff really done well and it just i just for a second i was just like that's all i had to do and it just really threw me how complex it was so i think there's some great points there about actually thinking about other things and thinking about the simple things done well yeah, no, I'm uh, yeah glad that sort of resonates because it's when we teach these sort of situations on our courses, that's often the situation that throws people the most where there's nothing wrong with the tracheostomy or the laryngectomy. It's something else. And that's just worth bearing in mind. Just carrying on talking a little bit about normal tracheostomies before we move on to the emergency algorithm and, and, and emergency problems with tracheostomies and, and laryngectomies. Suctioning a tube can just be part of its normal care. As far as the, the, the main things that, or the main important things that I found with regards to suctioning these, these tubes is use a soft tip catheter, which is pretty obvious. Go no higher than 200 millimeters of mercury of, of suction power, uh, which again makes, makes a lot of sense. You don't want to be putting too much suction into a delicate airway. And don't suction a fenestrated tube. And we've already discussed the 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 reasons for that uh, and the difficulties that we may have recognizing uh, if there's a fenestrated tube there. Are there any other points that you would suggest or pearls of wisdom when it comes to suctioning these tubes to bear in mind? No, I mean, it, it, it's a, it's a clean technique. It's, you know, it, it's, it's ideally sterile and, and, you know, it's quite tricky. I, I, we've shot lots of instructional videos. I find it really hard to remember how to have a clean glove over your outer glove. I mean, in an emergency it's a clean technique you know i wouldn't uh, worry too much about it being sterile but of course i should say try and do it as cleanly and sterilely as possible and again there's videos of people who can do this much better than me uh, on the website to to, to 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 show you how to do it you're right that you don't want to be 
um, shoving the uh, suction catheter all the way down, uh, right the way down into their lungs and, and deep suction, as it's called. But what you want to be doing when you're performing suction, particularly in an emergency, is to making sure that you've passed the suction catheter through the tube and down into the into the windpipe, and, and then you're doing your suction and various people describe, you know, rotatory movements, things like that. In an emergency, you basically shove the suction catheter in and make sure it's in sort of 20 centimetres or so for a standard tube. If it's a, a longer tube, uh, and, and, and you can tell that usually by the spare, hopefully, that the patient has got with them somewhere, uh, the longest tubes I've seen are about 20 centimetres long. So clearly you need to go in a bit longer than 20 centimetres. So it can seem like a long way down, but they'll typically be a big patient and they'll have a great big spare tube, hopefully somewhere near them. For a paediatric patient, usually there's quite sort of prescriptive details about how far in you should suction and, and what size that suction catheter will be. But if it's a paediatric patient in the community, they'll have a supply of that the, the right size tubes and there's usually information sort of always with, with that patient. And usually mum or dad uh, or the carers are, are, are pretty knowledgeable about how you should do suction. Um, and that, that, that's probably a point worth bringing up, actually, that if you turn up to uh, a location where there is a patient with a tracheostomy, be that a, um, a, a child's home with parents or, or, or a nursing home or, or a, a patient in their own home, there's often someone there uh, who is pretty knowledgeable about tracheostomy care. And so that they're pretty good people to, to ask, you know, that it's unusual for them to sort of step back and, and, and let uh, someone take over if, if, if clearly, you know, you've not come across tracheostomies before. So, you know, don't be afraid to ask for help or ask for some guidance or say to the carer, you know, why don't you do suction? Show me how to do it if, if you're not familiar with it. That's perfect. Thanks, Brendan. Simon, do you want to talk to us a little bit about humidification? So in a patient with a normal airway, the oro and nasopharynx, particularly the nasopharynx, warms and humidifies air. However, in a trachea or a laryngectomy patient, obviously the naso and oropharynx or the top of the, the oropharynx is bypassed, meaning that inspired air coming in is, is dry and cold, essentially. So this can have quite a few complications, mainly discomfort and coughing, especially when in cold environments. It also impairs mucociliary transport, resulting in airway inflammation, and there's an increased risk of pneumonia and other respiratory tract infections. This problem is exacerbated further when someone administers oxygen. We know that in a normal airway, oxygen is quite irritating, it's quite drying, and that's why when people are on oxygen long-term in hospital, we often give them humidified oxygen. And this can actually help with, one, the irritation, but also with secretion removal. So there must be options for people with uh, tracheostomies and laryngectomies at home to humidify their own airways. And the two that I've come across, which I'm hoping Brendan can just explain to us, are the Buchanan bib and then the use of nebulized saline. So, Brendan, do you reckon you could just explain those briefly to us? Yeah, sure. I mean, you're dead right that we all carry around our own portable humidification mechanism uh, sticking out the front of our face uh, in the shape of our nose. And if you bypass that, then secretions get thick and dry and can lead to blockage and, and potentially uh, pneumonias, uh, like you said. You can get around that by 
any sort of humidification. And, and we talk about a humidification ladder where you start off at the sort of bottom end and move up to people who really, really need humidification. And that typically when you have an infection or you get dehydrated and the secretions are really thick and dry. So the simplest things patients can do is, is wear a little filter over their tracheostomy or over their laryngectomy stoma. And essentially, that's a little piece of filter paper that, you know, if you breathe out into your hand, your hand gets warm and wet. And, and when you breathe out, that's what happens with these little filters. And they get warm and wet. And when you breathe back in, some of that moisture is then breathed back into your lungs again. And some of that warmth helps to warm the air up. So they're, they're the simplest things like a HME, heat moisture exchange filter that we use in breathing circuits. And uh, uh, there's like a mini version of that that you can stick over the end of a tube or, or, or over a stoma. Similar to that would be a, a Buchanan bib, which is a, a foam bib. It looks like the sort of bib that you would stick on a baby while you're trying to spoon feed it some uh, horrendous mush. But you can get pretty nice looking bibs. So I've said before, John, in one of our videos, is wearing a, a very elaborate looking cravat, which is actually a Buchanan bib, I think. And essentially, that's got the same thing. It, it's this sort of layer of, of filter paper, which uh, as you breathe out, captures the warmth and the moisture so when you breathe back in through that that filter the air that you breathe in picks up some of that warmth and moisture uh, as you breathe back in and you can wear a buchanan bib over a uh, tracheostomy but typically we tend to stick a little um, filter on the end of it because because it fits nicely the next step up from that would be some sort of active humidification which can be a, a cold water bath where you just bubble oxygen or air through a like a cold water typically a plastic box, so that's the cheapest, simplest way of, of humidifying. Then the next level up from that would be a heated water bath, uh, which gets more humidity into the gas that you breathe in. So that, that's something that's then worn externally through wherever you're, you're, you're breathing the most, which is usually through the neck, so through a little tracheostomy mask, which is just like a face mask, but just cut down a bit so it fits underneath your chin. Um, and then you can move on to sort of nebulized therapy, which... The, the most exotic one would be some sort of warmed water, which is nebulizer, ultrasonic nebulizer. We often give our patients saline nebs just to sort of supplement any humidification. We, we, we usually just use like normal saline. You can use hypertonic saline or very concentrated saline, which some people think is very effective. But if you have a patient that you come across in the community with very thick secretions, uh, you know, and if you change their energy and it, it, you know, it's filthy and full of, you know, the sort of horrible snot that you might find up, up someone's nose who's, uh, you know, got a horrendous cold, then giving those patients a, a saline nebulizer as an acute intervention might be a really helpful thing to help loosen some of those secretions and to help them cough some uh, some stuff up because secretions can get really dry and, and dry secretions increase the risk of blocking that little plastic tube that's uh, sticking in there away can i ask a possibly silly question where would you apply the nebulizer brendan would you apply it to if it assuming it's a tracheostomy patient to the face as you would conventionally a face mask or would you cite it over the tracheostomy which is going to be most useful yeah, it's not a silly question at all. And, and uh, you know, it would depend where the air is coming from. So uh, if the patient's talking to you, clearly they're moving gas through their nose and mouth. Uh, if they're not able to talk, you need to look, listen and feel at their nose and mouth and their tracheostomy. And I would have a feel and see where the, the gas is coming from. If it's coming from the mouth and the tracheostomy stoma, then it doesn't matter. You can stick it where you like. You might not have a, a tracheostomy mask 
uh, on the ambulance or, or, or with you wherever you are. So just a normal face mask over the face would do in that situation. You can hold a face mask over the neck. It doesn't really matter. But if they're predominantly breathing through their neck, then there's not much point sticking a, a mask, whether that's got oxygen or uh, a saline neb, over their nose and mouth because it, it's just not going to get into their lungs. It's not going to go where you need it to go. Okay, perfect. Let's move on then to discuss the emergency management. And as you've said, Brendan, emergency management of these patients often is centered around excess secretions or some sort of dislodged tube. And we'll also bear in mind, keep in the front of our mind, that it may be a problem or is more likely to be a problem that isn't associated to the tracheostomy or or laryngectomy. So we shouldn't get task-focused and we shouldn't get anchored to this being the only problem. But as this is a tracheostomy and laryngectomy emergency management podcast, we'll just focus on them. So... Brendan, can you let us know how you would approach an emergency with a patient that's got one of these airways? Yeah, so the first question is, is it a laryngectomy or is it a tracheostomy? And as we've already discussed, sometimes it's quite hard to tell the difference. It's usually pretty obvious. And so you'd look for those clues of the medical alert bracelets. Uh, the patient might be indicating something to you. It might be visually obvious. If you don't know, uh, then you hedge your bets and, and, and you assume that they've got a potentially patent upper airway, i.e. A, 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 a tracheostomy and a nose and mouth you can use because you're trying to work out, is this nose and mouth or is this hole in the neck of any use to me? The best way to describe this is if we assume the patient has a tracheostomy, uh, therefore they've got potentially patent nose and mouth that we can use for oxygenation and the tracheostomy stoma or tube, hopefully we can use for oxygenation as well. And then when we recap, we can just uh, think about it from perspective of some of the laryngectomy where we just uh, miss out those elements involving the nose and mouth. Okay, so we would start our approach to this patient then by using a conventional primary survey, by looking, listening and feeling for any breathing next to both holes, both the mouth and the tracheostomy site. Brendan, what would you do if you weren't certain that there was appropriate air movement from one of those sites? So then you're looking to work your way down an emergency algorithm. And and the way we've designed the approach in an emergency is to try and solve the commonest problems that are the easiest to fix. And so the common things we discuss with tracheostomies are, are that they get blocked or they get displaced. So The emergency response is to stick some oxygen over their nose and mouth and over their neck because you're hedging your bets that hopefully one of those airways will be patent and and hopefully the patient will be breathing adequate enough to to get a little bit of gas in through either one of those airways. If you're not convinced and you need to investigate that tracheostomy a bit more thoroughly, then when you inspect the trachea tube, it might be obviously displaced. Uh, If it's got any dressings around it, I I would take them off so you can actually inspect the tube and it might be obviously hanging out the neck. You might be at a funny looking angle. If there's a carer there, ask them, is is that normal? Because sometimes tubes are in at slightly funny angles, but not usually. There might be a cap, one of those humidification devices on, a speaking valve, which is something that sits over the end of the tracheostomy tube or, or some sort of connection Uh, over that tracheostomy, which can get blocked with sputum or with blood or secretions. And so if there's anything sticking on the end of the tracheostomy tube, take that off. And like with any airway intervention, once you've done something, you need to look, listen and feel and 
um, at both airways to see if has that made a difference? Has, has what you've just done made a difference? Because what you're hoping you've done is you've uncorked the airway. So take off any caps, speaking valves, or anything like that, which may be sticking on the tracheostomy tube, and then reassess the patient. And then so moving further down that, down that pathway, uh, it then goes on to suggest assessing for secretions that aren't cleared by a cough. Yeah, so if the patient is is awake and able to breathe adequately to, to, to cough, hopefully they can cough secretions out themselves. You are likely to then need some sort of suction. So while you're asking the patient, you can be getting either your suction or maybe even their suction ready because you're probably going to want to suction uh, this patient unless there's something very obviously else wrong with them. But while you're thinking about secretions, you may as well check the inner cannula which usually involves either untwisting or just removing uh, the inner lining of the tracheostomy tube, which, which, which is almost always present. And when you remove that inner cannula, you can check for secretions in that inner cannula. You know, if it comes out, looks crystal clear, uh, it's unlikely that the tube is blocked. Often there's sort of secretions in there. And if the secretions are pretty much blocking that inner cannula, then that might be all you need to do. To, to remove that that blockage of the airway. You know, it's like having a cork in your airway sometimes and you've basically just fished it out. And so removal of the inner cannula and, and sometimes cleaning it or getting a spare one, putting it back in again, may be all you need to do. Can I ask a question about, we've talked about removing and cleaning the inner tube. So just so we can clarify how that's done, um, Brendan, how would you clean an inner tube? Yeah, in an emergency, you'd be looking for a spare, really. Uh, yeah. I mean, I can imagine you might go into someone's home and, and it's not immediately obvious where the spares are. But yeah, you, you need to clean it with saline. And I mean, there are special swabs on sticks for, for, for cleaning them. You could just run some saline through it in an emergency. You, you might be able to manage without the inner cannula in certain tubes. Uh, just if you need to plug them into some sort of bag valve mask or ventilation system, you might need a clean in a cannula. So I wouldn't worry too much about cleaning it in an emergency. You know, you, ideally you would put in a, a spare in a cannula, but obviously in emergency situations, it's not always apparent. So you might need to clean it with gauze, a swab and some saline. Okay. So, so we've removed the inner tube and we still feel that the patient needs some suction. So we try to pass a soft tip suction catheter into the outer cannula into the tracheostomy and we're still unable to to do that we're unable to pass the suction catheter far enough into the uh, tracheostomy to to undertake suction what should we do in that instance Brendan? yeah well the suction catheter is both therapeutic in that you can perform suction and, and again hopefully fix the common problems which are blockage of the tube with secretions but it's also diagnostic as well so if you cannot pass a suction catheter then that tube is either blocked or displaced. And if you think about it again, the, the, the tube in the airway, if the catheter, suction catheter can't fit that 10 or 12 centimetres into the tube, then there's a blockage inside the tube itself. Or if the tube has come out of the trachea and is sitting in the soft tissues of the neck or is at a funny angle and the catheter can't come out of the distal end of the plastic tube and can't get into the windpipe then that, that tube has become displaced. So there's those little caveats we talked about before about sometimes the fenestrated inner cannula can, can sort of catch the suction catheter. But if you've already taken the inner cannula out and, and you look at it and go, oh, there's a hole in it, it's a fenestrated tube, 
that might jog your memory that, that you might need to do something different to, to be sure that the suction catheter is not passing. But generally, if the suction catheter won't go, then that means that tube is blocked or displaced. And that's telling you that that tracky tube is of no use to you. Now, you can't do much harm with a soft tip suction catheter. So if the patient has coughed their tube out of their trachea and it's sitting in the soft tissues of the neck, you know, a big patient, that can happen sometimes. If you go and get a bougie or like Dynarod or something like that and start poking it down their neck, you can create all sorts of problems. But a soft tip suction catheter, uh, you're not going to cause any problems by trying to pass a soft tip suction catheter. But if it won't pass, that's a very clear signal that there's something wrong with that tube. It's either blocked or displaced. Okay, so we're in that situation. At that point, we would remove the outer tube to just reveal the stomacite. Is that right? Yeah, it's a little step before. If they have a cuffed tube, so remember some patients may have a cuff-inflated, cuffed tracky tube out there. Uh, unusual, I, I suspect, in the community, but just some patients will have it perhaps more in, in, in the nursing residential home setting. Deflate the cuff because... If your suction won't pass, that's telling you that the tube is blocked or displaced. But if there's a cuff as well, then that cuff might be sealing off the airway. And if you deflate the cuff, even though the tube itself, the loom of the tube is blocked, you might be able to breathe past it. So if there's a cuff, deflate the cuff, because that might just be the salvage that, that you need to get some oxygen into the patient, um, and which means you don't have to worry about changing the tube there and then necessarily. But if deflating the cuff doesn't help, so you reassess like any OA intervention, if the patient has not improved uh, with that salvage manoeuvre of deflating the cuff, if it's present, then you're quite right. That tube is now an obstruction in the airway and uh, you have the power to remove it. And again, people freak out about um, tracky tubes and think this, you know, this patient needs this tube to stay alive. But actually, you've just diagnosed airway obstruction. And in the you know, if you imagine a situation where you've got someone lying flat on their back and they're clearly their tongues jammed down the back of their throat and they're trying to breathe and they're clearly obstructed, it's a similar situation where you've diagnosed obstruction, so you need to do something. So in the patient flat on their back, you might do your head tilt, chin lift, use a some sort of artificial airway to try and open their airway and get the breathing. It's the same with the tracky tube. If the suction catheter will not pass and your salvage manoeuvres are not working, they've got a blocked airway and, and you've got the power to to try and unblock it. And although it's a bit scary, removing a tracky tube is the next thing to do. And that is likely to, to fix your problem. Thanks for clarifying that point, Brendan, because I think that would be the step that um, I know would probably make me the most nervous, removing something that had been inserted by someone else. And I think that would be a step that and I'm sure Josh would agree with me that some ambulance clinicians may get to that point and feel I, I, I can't can't do that i don't want to do that but i think it's really good to hear from an expert that actually that's an algorithmic approach and that is the next thing to do and it is no different than you know effectively a foreign body airway obstruction at that point it is something in the airway that is stopping us from being able to ventilate and oxygenate the patient it's exactly the same yeah and and it happens a lot in hospital you know if someone's been for heroic head and neck surgery and they've been in theatre for 14 hours and they've struggled to put the tube in the neck and they come back to the unit and, and the staff are sometimes really stressed about taking out a tube. But if you've been systematically through an algorithm and gone, this tube is blocked, it's like having a cork in the patient's airway. You're dead right, it's an inhaled foreign body. And um, pulling it out should solve the problem. It might not if the patient's not breathing or, you know, if they've got something else wrong with them. But, you know, there's no point going to the mortuary with a blocked airway. And, you know, I read, unfortunately, lots of 
reports into tracheostomy harm. And, and a lot of the time, staff are afraid to uh, remove a, a blocked tracheostomy and, and, and they'll kick themselves afterwards, obviously, thinking, well, you know, I, I was sure it was blocked, but I didn't want to take it out. But if you just get it in your head that this is a, uh, it's a foreign body, it, it's an it's a blockage of the airway and uh, taking it out seems like a big deal. But if you're in the community with tracheostomy, then it'll have been in there for plenty of time for it to be an established stoma. So, you know, you can take the tube out and you don't have to put another one straight back in again. And I think that's the key, isn't it? It's just like with any other stepwise algorithm is, is there's lots of steps here. There's lots of things that we are changing and it's just reassessing to see whether that's improved it before you move on to the next step. So we've got this patient, we've we've moved through this point of the algorithm, and we've hopefully got a patent airway at this point. I think it would probably be useful to talk about, very quickly, oxygen therapy in the instance that they're conscious, and then we should probably talk about the unconscious patient and our ventilation options, say if they're in cardiac arrest or peri-arrest. Yeah, so if we've removed a tracheostomy tube, as you already quite rightly said, you need to reassess. You've done an airway intervention, reassess. That's look, listen, feel at the neck and at the face. And hopefully the patient will be breathing, uh, which makes life an awful lot easier because you can feel breath, hopefully from the upper airway or feel breath from the stoma. If the patient is breathing, then the easiest thing to do is to cover the stoma with a gauze and and a gloved hand and and just pretend they haven't got a tracheostomy because if they've got a patent or a potentially patent upper airway, then they should breathe adequately through their nose and mouth. And if they're not breathing, then again, the simplest thing to do is to cover the hole in the neck, use your normal airway skills, bag valve mask, uh, Gidel nasal airway, that the simple stuff you would do for any patient who, who, who wasn't breathing adequately and forget that they've got a, a, a tracheostomy. Now, the reason for the tracheostomy, as we keep going back to it, is because they might have an upper airway problem. And if you're not able to breathe through it or, or ventilate through your nose and mouth adequately, either with you bag valve masking or by the patient's own effort, then you need to move to the stoma. And that's where life can get a bit more tricky, but you know, you, you, you're, you're looking f- to, to get some gas into the patient. And, and you know, in this situation, you have to think actually this is lucky because they've got a spare airway so if you came across a patient you couldn't ventilate you think oh what am I gonna have to do now to think about you know attempted intubation laryngeal mask or or you know god forbid a, a cryotherotomy or something like that but here there's a great big hole in the patient's trachea so it's actually a bonus so you have to imagine the heavens have parted and the light is shining on the neck for you and you can use a pediatric face mask or a superglottic airway device like a laryngeal mask and you can apply it sort of press it onto the patient's neck and they can either breathe spontaneously with that uh, arrangement or or you can actually ventilate them quite effectively using a a laryngeal mask or a pediatric face mask applied to that stoma in their neck. When it comes to like holding the mask so uh, from I would imagine that the the kind of best way would be to kind of wrap hands around the back of the neck and then hold it like a double like a double CE grip but but kind of with the the fingers on the back and then just the e-grip on top is that how you would hold it or is there a particular way uh it doesn't really matter uh there's again some some lovely videos that we uh we that we shot which are probably easier to just have a look at but uh, if you need to apply some positive pressure then you need some sort of seal uh, a laryngeal mask is great for that because you just basically press it onto the front of the neck bit bit of air in the in the cuff of the laryngeal mask 
and it seems to work pretty well. Eye gels, things like that, it doesn't work quite so well, but you can still ventilate someone effectively. It just depends on the shape of the patient. But if they're breathing spontaneously, you just need to hold an oxygen mask in the general vicinity, either of their neck or of their or, or of their face, or both if they're breathing through both holes. But if you need to deliver some some positive pressure ventilation, then you need some sort of seal. But yeah, typically, I mean, I would reach for a laryngeal mask and just press it onto the front of their neck and, and then try and use a bag then to, to, to ventilate them. Do you think it's reasonable to put oxygen through both points, Brendan? In, in, if, say, you've tried traditional airway management and, and you don't feel you're getting any, anywhere because of, say, a massive airway tumour, is it reasonable to have high flow uh, on there anyway to maximise, hopefully, the, the FiO2 the patient's getting? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, the, the, even if the airway is, is a pinhole, it, it's still a potential route for trying to get some oxygen to these patients. And, and, you know, if you're in a situation where you're struggling, then, you know, we have got two airways. One of them might not be any good, but, you know, you might be able to get some gas, some oxygen in. Um, and so w- what we teach, um, certainly in the hospital situation, is, is, is if you're in this sort of trying to get some air in, bagging either via the neck or via the face, this sort of double approach can work quite well. And, and, you know, certainly recesses I've been to, we're trying to get some oxygen in from above and trying to get some oxygen in uh, via the neck. So uh, using two oxygen supplies and, and, and sometimes two people to try and ventilate two different airways is, is, is entirely reasonable. And what you want at the end of the day is an oxygenated patient. How the oxygen gets in there doesn't really matter. Okay. So, so we've we've talked about maybe the the patients that are spontaneously breathing that don't need active ventilation. Let's let's talk about the patients that need active ventilation and perhaps uh, need a bit more invasive management of their tracheostomy to to generate effective chest rise. So, say the the eye gel isn't just isn't quite cutting it over the over the stoma site, and we've removed that tracheostomy. Obviously, if if it wasn't blocked in the first place, we would hopefully have a, a tracheostomy tube to connect our BVM and HME filter straight onto, uh, and we would be able to ventilate them directly through the tracheostomy. But that, that would only be the case in a cuffed tube, is that right? So, I mean, if we just t- take a step back, I mean, it, it, it's the same analogy, as say, if someone keeled over and you start off with your basic airway manoeuvres, your bag valve mask, you might move on to supraglottic airway, and then you're thinking, okay, I'm not able to oxygenate this patient, but as I said before, we've got two airways to play with. You are going to need to then get invasive, and and you know that this is just the same as as managing the upper airway. You either need to think about putting a tube down from above, uh, an endotracheal tube with a you know direct laryngoscopy, or uh, however you're you're sort of trained to do that. And most patients with a tracheostomy will. will be a difficult intubation but you know if if you've intubated 10 20 whatever people and you've done it on a mannequin once every three months for the last 10 years you know don't suddenly try and intubate a tracheostomy when you've never done it before so you know do what you're good at if you think okay i cannot oxygenate this patient using my bag valve mask or laryngeal mask on the face or on the neck i'm going to i need to do something else then put a tube in from the top end if you can see what you're doing and, and see what you're going and obviously the patient's unconscious etc but you know do, do what you're good at if the patient is awake obviously you can't stick a laryngoscope down the back of their throat and, and if they've got an established stoma you know a weeks to months or sometimes years old stoma in front of the neck then then putting a new tracheostomy tube back in through that hole or even the old one if it looks all right is is, is a perfectly reasonable thing to do the intubating 
a stoma with a tracheostomy tube is is pretty straightforward. Again, if you've not done it, you, you can be really anxious about it. Uh, but most of the time, it, it's pretty easy. Ideally, it would be a cuff tube. But again, if, if you're having trouble getting oxygen to the patient through their nose and mouth, that's telling you their upper airway is a problem. So if you use an uncuffed tube and you try and ventilate through that uncuffed tube, hardly any gas is going to escape up because of the blockage. So by the very nature of what you discovered that you can't oxygenate via the nose and mouth, that means that they're difficult to, you know, if you use an uncuffed tube, it, it, it doesn't matter because there's effectively a um, someone uh, blocking the top of the airway for you. So any gas you blow in is, is going to end up going south into the lungs. If you cannot man- manage them non-invasively, then you need to move to being invasive, which is falling back on your skill set of usually uh, an oral intubation, or if that's difficult or impossible or not appropriate because the patient is, is is not unconscious, then putting a new tube into the stoma is is is, is the next step, uh, which can be cuffed or uncuffed. I don't think it matters too much in an emergency. And at that point, Brendan, could we kind of resort to our basic training of uh, like a cricothyroid where we would use a bougie, maybe put a finger into the hole that's already been made for us, then like a bougie and then slide a six kind of six size ET cuff over the top of that? You can. I would discourage you from doing that in the first instance. So most patients with tracheopsis in the community will have an established stoma. And so, uh, again, if you look on the website, there's, there's plenty of videos of showing how to do it. There's a bit of a technique to getting the curve around the corner. Um, but, you know, start with a tracheostomy tube. If that won't go in, then the patient should have a smaller size tube. So say they come out with a size 8 tube, that the, the measurements are the same as, as endotracheal tubes. You know, it's 8 millimeter internal diameter. They should have a spare 8 and a spare 7, just in case they have problems getting one in. If you can't find a trachea tube, then an, an endotracheal tube is fine. So we, we tell people just to default to a size 6, because a size 6, 6 millimeter internal diameter trachea, uh, endotracheal tube should go into a tracheostoma in, in an adult in, in most situations. You've got to be a bit careful that you don't shove it all the way in because obviously there's a short distance or shorter distance between the stoma and the um, and, and, and the, the, the carina, you know, where the lungs split left and right. So there's a greater chance of shoving it down the, the right main bronchus. So you just have to put the, the balloon so it disappears inside the, the hole in the neck and then there'll be a lot of tubes sticking out. But, you know, we, we teach our staff in emergency if they can't find a tracheostomy to go for a size six endotracheal tube. Uh, if that won't go in, then you're in a bit of trouble. And and if you think about the algorithm, which again, you can view online, you're down in the sort of the, the brown zone of the algorithm where, you know, things aren't going so well. So I would discourage you in the first instance for putting fingers or bougies down deep, dark holes, because that's when you're more likely to, to, to create false passages and things like that. You know, if you just stick in um, things into the stoma, you know, you can create new problems and bleeding. So I would start with tubes, but if the tube won't go in, then yeah, you're, you're in a bit of trouble. And so resorting to using a, a bougie, uh, it's described, it's not recommended, but you know, sometimes you need to do things like that. I, I would hope that, that there's plenty of steps you can do before you get to that point. So, you know, no one's going to jump up and down and say, why did you put a bougie down that airway? If you've done everything else to get to that point, because sometimes that will bail you out of a problem, just as you're saying with all the other times you might use a bougie. But I, I, I would use it as a very much a last resort. 
That's brilliant. Thank you. So to summarize then, so we would approach with kind of a standard approach. Um, we would first try an aura wear maneuver. We would cover the stoma using either swabs or our hand, use a, a bag mass ventilation, oral and nasal airway adjuncts as normal, or a superglottic airway device. If we think that there is no air movement after we've obviously deflated a cuff tube, if it's there, then we can ventilate via the stoma so we would use something like a pediatric face mask directly to the stoma or a superglottic airway ideally an lma but pre-hospitally probably more likely to be an eye gel which may not be as good and then if that doesn't work then obviously probably most of us wouldn't attempt an oral intubation because it seems like you need to be pretty experienced but obviously if you have got experienced anesthetics and critical care help back up coming that might be an option and then obviously finally to use a replacement one of the patient's replacement tracheostomy tubes to reinsert and if that finally fails a size probably a size 6 ET tube and as a really last resort a kind of bougie over tube but obviously watch how far we insert it is that a fair summary do you think? It is, yeah, and and we've mentioned this already. You know, think about the the regular carers and and, and parents in particular. You know, and, and again, I've seen descriptions of this where the paramedics turn up and, and are clearly less experienced than the mum and dad who might have been doing this for you know three years, but they step back because you're the professionals. And if there may well be someone in that room, in that environment, in that situation that that has changed that tracheostomy tube, you know once a week for the past three years that you know i would say is anyone happy changing tubes and you know if you've never done it before so don't be afraid to say look i've i i don't do this very often (laughs) brendan in terms of ventilation when a patient's got a tracheostomy they've potentially got a loss of up to sort of 50 percent of their physiological dead space so when we're thinking about ventilation is it something that we need to think about in terms of the tidal volume that we're putting through a ventilator or perhaps what we're what we're using in terms of bag valve mask do we need to be considerate of the of the tidal volumes and reducing comparative to to that loss in anatomical dead space that's a very good question you've obviously been doing your homework uh no is the short answer um so typical 500 mil breath you've got about 150 mils of 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 dead space half of that is physiological half of that's anatomical so we're talking of you know, 30 or 40 mils probably that the tracheostomy saves, which if you're struggling in an ICU trying to get off a ventilator, if you can save them having to shift that 30 or 40 mils of breath every breath for, you know, the month that they're trying to get off a ventilator, that's actually quite a lot of work. But in an emergency, it's negligible. So I wouldn't worry about it at all. Brilliant. Thanks very much. One of the questions that that might come up, Brendan, uh, so I'll ask it, is in JR Calc, which is is the the main guideline that most paramedics will be familiar with using and is is probably the main guideline when it comes to tracheostomies most paramedics would refer to, it says quite clearly at the top, never reintroduce a tracheostomy tube. I guess that is very different to replacing the tube with a new one from the patient. Is that a fair assessment? And is there ever a case to replace a tracheostomy tube with one you've just taken out? Yeah, I mean, I presume they're talking about a situation where the tracheo tube looks like it's hanging out. Um, and I think blindly pushing something when you don't quite know what's going on, uh, you know, that, that can create these things called false passages, which is where the tube ends up in front of the trachea instead of in the trachea. So I think if, if someone's got a tube that's hanging out, I think the best approach is to work again systematically with their algorithm. And, and if you need to totally remove that tube, then then take it out. 
if you have got no spare tube and the tube you've just taken out is clean, is patent and, and looks like it would do a job, and you haven't got another clean one or a spare one, I don't see a problem in, in, in putting that tube back in. And certainly I've been in situations where patients have coughed out a tube while I've been sat next to them and I've just put it back in again. So, you, you know, I, I think that guidance is probably aimed at saying, if a tube is half in, half out, don't just give it a shove, you know, systematically work through some sort of approach as we just described there. I think you're better to, to, to completely remove a tube, check what's going on, you know, think, can I oxygenate the patient via their nose, mouth, or their neck. And if you can't, then you might need to put a tube back in. But if you're in someone's home and the only tube you can find is the one that is in your hand and it looks okay, then I can't see a problem with putting it back in. Excellent. That That's really useful as, as there's uh, probably large numbers of, of the paramedic community now in, in traditional ambulance roles have had intubation either removed or, or having varying limitations on that. So they may not have a size six tube and bougie in the ambulance to work with. So it, it's, it's really good to know that they, they can use and probably should use the patient's tracheostomy tubes in, in that instance. I think just before we finish up, then it would be good to briefly discuss laryngectomies and and what if any changes there are to that. It, it's a mostly stepwise airway management, and obviously, as we've discussed, the the bits about the upper airway aren't going to be relevant, so we can discount those. Is there anything that we would do differently with a laryngectomy patient? No. So as you've already uh, highlighted, the most important thing is to recognise it's a laryngectomy, which can be from those clues we discussed before. They may have uh, coverings over their stoma, so I would I would remove those. You don't necessarily need to remove the, the sticky base plate, which goes around the stoma. You perform your suction directly into the stoma. So, you know, as I said, when you look in and there's the, if there's no tube in the stoma, it just looks like you're looking straight into someone's windpipe. And so you, you paste the suction catheter straight into that hole, which can be a bit disconcerting the, the first time you do it. But because of this issue with humidification, often you can get, a lot of crusting and, and thick secretions sometimes uh, in the laryngectomy stoma. So suction is a, is a really useful thing uh, to do. But I think the, the the most important thing is, you know, if you do have a problem with a patient not breathing and you need to ventilate them, then just remembering and telling anyone else that turns up or when you get to A&E, telling anyone that wants to listen that you know or you think they've got a laryngectomy and so sticking an oxygen mask on their face uh, will do absolutely nothing. I guess one uh, point to make absolutely clear, although hopefully uh, it's not one that we, we need to make, is, is the use of entidal capnography, particularly waveform capnography in, in the uh, management of these patients, especially if we're doing anything with, with adjusting tubes or, or, uh, or changing tubes, using that to ensure that we're, the, that we're ventilating the patient and we haven't created a, a false channel. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that that's what we reach for in the first incident. And, and, and the top of our algorithm is call for help, find some catnography, because if, if you have it, waveform catnography is sometimes the only way to tell whether you, you, you've, you've got um, some sort of airway. And, and, you know, particularly of a big patient, it can be really hard to tell whether they're actually breathing or not. And so, yeah, catnography, if you have it, is, is absolutely essential. Well, all that's left to say is, Brendan, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, this has been a, a really informative podcast. And I know I speak for a, a lot of our listeners in saying that this is is definitely possibly the only, if not the best, training on, on this area 
of uh, of medicine that, that we'll have had. And I think this is really useful to put into the conversation and, and put into the open access medical education for, for paramedics. Would you mind just letting us know about the, the uh, your website and the training packages that you've put together that, that paramedics can go and, and learn from and, and access for free? Yep, sure. So if you type tracheostomy into Google and tracheostomy UK, if you're outside of, of the United Kingdom, uh, the website is uh, tracheostomy.org.uk. The resources are primarily hospital focused. So there might be a few things on there that, that are not relevant to emergency responders, such as paramedics, but there are things on there geared towards children and uh, some videos about resourcing babies and children with tracheostomies in their own home, which, which might be quite interesting. Even if you're on your way uh, in the ambulance to a uh, tracheostomy emergency that you hear about, you can have a quick look on the uh, app or on the website, and there's a two-minute video running through the key points of the algorithm. So you, we've done it to be that sort of just-in-time type training. Uh, if you want to go a bit deeper, there are six e-learning packages uh, made with uh, e-learning for healthcare, Health Education England. You can complete a couple of questions and get a certificate for your CPD portfolio. You don't have to do them all. You can pick and choose. But there's stuff on there about, you know, different types of tubes you might see, all the speaking valves covers, differences with laryngectomies, uh, and then running through that emergency management in, in, in adults uh, and with children. But it's primarily a one-stop shop for emergency management and then all things uh, tracheostomy and laryngectomy. Excellent. And we will, of course, put those up on the website, Brendan, for people to go and find. Okay, so let's summarise. Tracheostomies and laryngectomies might seem scary, but by understanding their intricacies and following a simple stepwise approach to them, they really aren't that difficult to manage. Tracheostomies are a hole in the hosepipe. This means they don't have a disconnected upper airway, and so we may have two airways through which to oxygenate. Laryngectomies, on the other hand, are a separation of the trachea from these upper airways, so as a result, the laryngectomy stoma is our only option for oxygenation. The main emergencies we're likely to encounter with these airways are either a tube blockage or a tube dislodgement. But remember, these patients often have other comorbidities too, so not all difficulties in breathing are going to be stoma related. Don't miss the obvious PE whilst you're looking for that suction. These patients can often have problems with secretions, so consider ways of humidifying the air that they breathe, particularly if we're also giving them supplementary oxygen. In an emergency, you have to ask yourself, do I have two potential airways to work with, or only one? In the case of a tracheostomy, look, listen and feel at both airways, and consider applying oxygen to both. If there's any doubt, apply oxygen to both the mouth and the stoma site. If you're ventilating via the mouth, don't forget to occlude the tracheostomy site. If you're suctioning a stoma site, remember only use a soft tip catheter, no more than 200 millimeters of mercury of suction, and don't suction further than about 20 centimeters. But that might be less if it's a child or small adult. You may need to remove inner tubes and outer tubes if you're unable to suction or improve the situation. But remember, do this in a stepwise format, reassessing after each stage. Don't just start pulling on whatever you can get your hands on. And finally, we've discussed the various means in which to manage the airway a tracheostomy or laryngectomy patient. 
don't forget to use end-tidal capnography here, and as we've said, don't reach straight for the endotracheal tube. Often, less invasive interventions will be beneficial. As always, we will uh, have an article and some show notes uh, up on the website, and we will, of course, link to uh, all of those resources that you've uh, that you've created, Brendan, uh, on the website, which is generalbroadcast.org.uk. Thank you very much, Brendan, for joining us and sharing your incredible insight into this topic. Those of you that are listening, thanks very much for for joining us. Hopefully you found this as useful a topic as we did. And if that is the case, then please don't keep this knowledge a secret. Please share it with your colleagues, with your students, with your lecturers. And let's help make it so that tracheostomies and laryngectomies aren't one of those little taboos that we all secretly pray we never go to. That's all for this month. Thanks again for joining us and we will see you next month.